This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good to see you guys this evening. I do. I love smaller, intimate services. I really do. I enjoy it. Does anybody need a Bible? We're in Revelation chapter 3. We're doing the church that we are a part of. This, this message is for, for you guys, for me tonight. If you feel what I'm, if you smell what I'm cooking. Church of Philadelphia. Um, and then I just let you know a few things about these announcements. If you're new with us, we have connection cards in the back. I'd like you to fill one out if, if you're new or if you have a prayer request. Coming up, we're going to be starting a Bible college November 13th. It's every Tuesday from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. It's $100 per semester per class, which is just $100 per class. And there's more information in the sign-up sheet at the information station. So if you would like more information or you would like to sign up for that, please do so at the back. And then October 19th, which is this Friday, we're having a UNLV tailgate and football game. The cost is $15. That includes, I, I believe, a couple hot dogs. And, but we're going to have games, cornhole. We have, I, th- I think that we have so many people going. I think that we're close to 40 people now. Um, we had to get two tailgate spots. So if you're interested... Let me know right now. Okay, one. Anybody else? Okay. Hey, babe, could you text Ronnie and tell her that we have four new, four more tailgate spots for sure? Okay, that's going to be a good time. The game, the tailgate starts at 4 p.m. and the game starts at 7 p.m. Today's the deadline, so we need to let them know so that they can finalize the tickets. And I think you, you guys put us over 40, I'm pretty sure. So that's, that's cool. Pray for UNLV, that they'll do all right. And pray for souls to get saved at UNLV. Our on-campus group meets there every Thursday at 5.30, so be praying for them, please. Let's pray, and then we'll get into Revelation chapter chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Father, thank you for that time of worship, God. Thank you that, that we have this meeting here Sunday evening to gather together, God, and to come and just humbly sit at your feet. Many people are busy with many things, says the whole church, the world. Many people are busy with many things. We desire to come sit at your feet, Lord Jesus, and hear what your spirit has to speak to us tonight. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The faithful church, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13, the church of Philadelphia, I say, have said it in jest multiple times, many times over the years that I am in the congregation of the Philadelphians. All joking aside, 
the church of Philadelphia is the church in the book of Revelation that the Lord has used to speak and minister to me the most more than any other church. And what I mean by that is there'll be times and seasons that I'll be going through life and the Lord will direct me to scripture that he spoke to the church in Philadelphia. He, he, he directed me there for comfort, for affirmation, for cl- uh, clarity, for direction. And the one notable thing, there's only two churches that there's not anything, any disapproval or reproach spoken to, and, and Philadelphia is one of those churches. There's nothing bad to say. He just wants to encourage them. He wants to bless them. They've been doing the right thing. And there's a little bit of insight into that as we see. Many of these verses, I can go through a good majority, most if not, you know, most of the verses that the Lord has given me over the years, all of them have, most of them have been while we were on the mission field. And, and it's when strength was little, and it was when God was opening doors and closing doors, and it was his affirming of, of our desire to serve him and working for him, literally, and it just being us for a season, for seasons, Grace and I. Uh, I'll share just a little bit about it, but we went down, we moved down to Split Croatia to help plant a church. I was going to co-help, co-lead this team with the pastor that was taking these people down there. And it was 2005. Gracie and I had just gotten married, and we got married and immediately flew to Croatia to be part of this church plant team. There was about 12 people on the team, 10 people that were on the official team, a couple people that joined us shortly after we got there. And within six months, uh, we were down to four. Everybody else either moved back to the States, went somewhere else, or never actually ever came. They just said they were coming, they're coming, they're coming. Oh, we changed our minds, we're not coming. Okay, so we're down to four, and those four people were my wife and I, and the pastor and his wife, and a couple small kids. Two months after that, we suffered one of the more difficult trials in marriage in that we had our second miscarriage. Grace was in her second trimester, and she had to stay in the hospital for three days for them to evaluate her. She had a DNC, and, and, and they, uh, they needed to, um, you know, monitor her or whatever. And it was right at that same time that that was all happening, eight months in to us committing to being on this team, that, that um, they approached us, the pastor and his wife, and they said, hey, uh, just sorry to let you know. I don't even think they said sorry, honestly. They were like, hey, just going to let you know that we're moving back to Colorado. We're leaving too. And then here we are, you know, newlywed coupled, going through some trials, not interpersonally in marriage, but circumstantially in marriage. And um, a lot of questions. God was carrying us through it. In fact, that was the time that I've shared the story with you guys before. I don't know if, 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 if you guys remember it or not or if, or if you were here, but that was the time where God provided for us supernaturally. Two weeks before the miscarriage, we got $1,000 extra in support. We were super stoked. Well, we're going to buy lots of candy and coffee and a scooter 
And it was not even a week or two later that she had the miscarriage and we were walking out of the hospital, go to the bill payment. They've got a window where you pay. They slide the bill across a thousand bucks. You know, it's $998.99. And okay, God, you know, you're going to take care of us. You're going to take care of us. And I was walking down the main street in split, crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, you know, what's going on? Where do you want us to go? This wasn't in the cards. I wanted to be a helper. I wanted to come alongside somebody and learn. I was not intending to do this on my own with my wife. And it's in that moment that the Lord spoke to me and he said, Tim, if you came here because you were following Mike, then move to Colorado with him. But if you came here because you were following me and you believe that I was leading you, then this is, you're in the right place. This is where you're supposed to be. So I went home, talked to Grace, and we, you know, it wasn't even really a question. After that, that's it. We're staying. So we're there for another seven years, and we were there for eight years, about a little less than eight years total. And the church was planted. Uh, nationals were raised up. We had an international uh, population at the church as well. We were the only church in a six-hour radius or more. I th- I th- at that time, I think we were the only church in the country that was bilingual, teaching the Bible in English and Croatian. So there was a need, you know, and, and um, at that point, there was a Croatian national guy who um, had, had served and and led as an elder in the church for, for quite a long time, quite some time. And he took over the fellowship, and they continue to this day. Many of you know, this past summer in June, they asked uh, if I would marry him and his fiance. So we were already going to Croatia. They pushed up their wedding date. I was able to marry this elder that took over the fellowship and his, his wife, which was an awesome, incredible time that we got to have there. And it's through, it's, it was through really the majority of that eight-ish years or so that, that the Lord would bring these verses. So I, I'm going to try not to overshare on you, <laughs> um, and I'll keep it to the time, but um, it, it's very personal for me. There's, there's theological significance, obviously. There's historical, and, and we'll also look at that, but th- some of these verses are very personal precious and personal to me. So I love it. I love being part of the Church of Philadelphia. And I don't like it. I don't like being disciplined. So <laughs> if the Lord tells me to do something, all right, Lord, let's do that thing so we don't, I don't get in trouble. Starting off, chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says, he who is holy He who is true, he who is holy, and he who is true. This church, one commentator said it like this. I don't really like the phraseology, how he said it, but I'll share with you. Maybe they ran out of titles in chapter 1 to give to Jesus for the churches because these two are not included in that original introduction. But they still have significance in that he's talking to a church that was being persecuted and going through a difficult time. And and the two things that he wants them to stand on as far as his character is concerned is that he is holy and he is true. I like to take these words that are 
they're pretty clear in English, but, but we can use a, a different word to make it a little bit clearer. The word holy, I think the best word for me that, that we can use as a synonym for holy is different. When you think of somebody or something that's holy, I think that in the church context, it's difficult to understand what holy means. Holy means like you have to be perfect. You have to do everything perfectly the right way. And God is those things and does those things. But God in, in his holiness is, is different, the good different, not the bad different, not the, oh, you're different, you know. God is different in that he's better and holier and, and, and more awesome than anybody else. And he does things perfectly. This is he who is holy, who you may not understand because he's so far outside of the way that the world does things. I'm different. He who is different, approaches things differently, solves problems differently. Do you notice that the way that God wants you to live your life by trusting in him is different than the way that the world lives their lives because the world lives their lives. And they say, you have to take things into your own hands. You've got to figure this out. You've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've got to, you, 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 you. And God says, listen, I want you to stop and consider that I am the one who is ultimately in my holiness and my different approach to things. I am the one that's going to take care of you. This is one of the things that on Wednesday night that we talk about that the Israelites struggle with so much. They had this tendency to gravitate back to the way that the, the countries around them and the, and the peoples around them, they had a tendency to gravitate back to those methodologies. And God's like, stop it, you guys. I'm, I'm holy and I want you to be holy. I'm different from everybody else in the best way possible and I want you to be different from everybody else. And that's the thing in, in the secular context that is the greatest compliment that I get from people that don't know me very well. They say, hey, you know what, Tim, you're different. And every time they say that, you're different. What's different about you? Why is your approach to life different? Why are you so confident? This is what I hear in my head. They say, Tim, you're different. I, I hear, Tim, you're holy. Because my difference doesn't come from me. My difference from the rest of the world only has to come from the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I can use that opportunity to say, hey, it's not me. It's God. And God is holy. He's different. And he calls me to be holy. He calls me to be different. And I'm lined up with who he wants me to be in representing himself as we looked at a little bit this morning. So he who is holy and he who is true. I love this. I love this. Who wants to know the truth? I want to know the truth. I'm tired of fake news. I'm so tired of fake news and everybody talking about fake news and you don't know what you can believe anymore, but Jesus is not fake news. Jesus is, I am the truth and I am the truth that will set you free. And anything that's not truth creates and produces bondage in your life. And Jesus says, I'm holy, I'm different, and I am true. And these things that I'm going to give to you, church in Philadelphia, you can take to the bank. Now, this area, Philadelphia, was obviously in this area of, of uh, 
Asia Minor, and it, it's, it was different from the other cities in that it was a gateway to the east. They called it the gateway to the east, and you'd have to travel through Philadelphia to be able to go further into the east. And we know the word Philadelphia means brotherly love, and where we get that term brotherly love were these two brothers. One was a king, and the other was his brother under him, and the brother that was a king went to war and he didn't come back. And somebody sent some couriers back saying, your brother was captured, your brother was killed. Now it's up to you to take the throne. The people duped him. He stood up, he took the throne, and then one day, who comes riding home on their donkey horse or whatever they rode back then? Camel. Who was it? His brother. And his, and his brother's like, wait, what are you doing? He's like, hey, they told me you're dead. I didn't know. Here, take the crown back. And people were trying to, to trick him. People were trying to dupe him. They were trying to get him to go against his brother and keep the crown because people didn't like it. And he said, no, not only am I stepping down and giving the crown back, but I'm, I'm also restoring some of these other things that he didn't even have to restore back to his brother. So was born this term Philadelphia, which is this brotherly love that these two brothers had for each other. And that's kind of interesting because that's kind of different, isn't it? That's kind of different. And see how everything kind of, it kind of is connected. The church in Philadelphia is different, different kind of church, different kind of Christians, the kind of Christians that took God seriously for what he said. They believed in a different kind of God. They overcame difficult kinds of circumstances because of their faith in God, because, you know, they were, they were a little different in a good way. He who is holy, he who is true, the city of brotherly love. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This verse from the Old Testament is speaking of the treasury key of the house of David. And there would be a steward that had that key. And that steward was the only person other than David himself, obviously, or it would be David himself that would have the key, that would be able to gain access into the treasury of all these trove, you know, this, this treasure trove of things. What it speaks of, it speaks of unlimited resources. This is one of those verses as a missionary that the Lord had to get, you know, he had to remind me a few times. He's like, I got the keys of David. Another one in Psalms, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, actually, I think that's Samuel. But I, 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 I have limitless resources. I don't want you to worry about tomorrow. I don't want to worry about what, what, you, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what, what, what you're going to... I, I, I clothe the lilies. I clothe the flowers. How much more is your heavenly Father going to take care of you? I've got the key to the treasure. I've got full access of the whole kingdom to, to shower down on you what you need. And, and what I see you having right now is sufficient for your need. And sometimes we're like, God, this isn't sufficient. God, I need to get a, a second job. God, I need to send, you know, my kids to work, which isn't a bad idea. God, what are you, why are you doing this to me? Hey, be good stewards of what you've been given. Give, be good stewards of what you have. And God's going to meet your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's going to do it. But he's saying to them, this Probably smaller, struggling church. I've got the keys. He who has the key of David, 
He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This is a twofold promise from the Lord to me personally. Now, again, I'm talking about personal. I'm talking about biblical interpretation. I'm saying the Lord using a verse to encourage me in in a season that I was in. And and he would say to me, uh, I would say, God, I can't do that because that door's closed. And, and, and I'm, I'm not going to push that door open. He says, listen, I'm the, I'm the one, I'm the guy that opens that no man can shut and shuts that no man can open. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you want something so badly that you're willing to fight for it? Have you ever been in that kind of situation? What, whatever it is. And you're like, I want this thing. I want this job. I want this career. I want this car. I want this house. I want this. I want this so bad. And you're like, no matter what it takes, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. I can be kind of stubborn and I can kind of try to push the door open sometimes. Well, not anymore. I've learned my lesson, really. I don't want to do that anymore. If I sense that the Lord's closed the door, I'm not going to try to push it. So, so you go through, and when, it, when you're younger or going through that, it's, it's more difficult because you're learning a difficult lesson. But you're going forward, the door's shut, and it's not going to open. God says, that door's shut, and it's not meant to be open right now, and it's not going to be open, and I'll open the doors that I want open for you, and I, I'm going to close the doors that I don't want you to go through. And then there's other times where you kind of want something, or it, it happens later, you know, and you have a little bit more spiritual maturity, and, and you want something, you kind of take a step of faith, and, and the door is just like flung wide open. And by all circumstance, it does not seem like it's possible, like, it, like it's even probable. But somehow, each step you take, the doors open wider and wider and wider till you find yourself in a position where, how did I even get here? Like, how did this even happen? This other thing was way, way, nowhere near as great as this thing. Nowhere near as great as this thing. And the door was closed so shut, I couldn't pry it open with a crowbar. And this thing would be way more difficult and not impossible to come to pass. And it was like a walk in the park. It was a breeze. God, when he opens doors, they're open. And God, when he closes doors, he closes them. This is meant for an encouragement to the church in Philadelphia. It's meant to be an encouragement for us. Let's take, keep it in mind and not let it be something that, that is meant to be a warning. You know, like, hey, I told you. I, I, I close doors and I open doors. And, and for you, I want you to trust me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to open the doors and close the doors that nobody else can touch. Verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. When God opens a door, nobody's going to touch it. He, it is not going to be shut. He says, I, I know your works and I set before you an open door that no one can work or can shut. I have, I know your works underlined. And this is why, because faith, if you say that you have faith, James would like this if we were having a conversation. Faith works in, in multiple ways you know, kinds of scenarios. Faith, where if you say that you believe something, your life will exhibit that belief. It should. If it's genuine, true faith, it will be shown through the things that you do because you will always be doing something, right? You will be doing good or you will be doing bad. In fact, the works that is talked about in the seven churches of Revelation, if you've been following along and paying attention, for most of the churches, he talks about their works. He talks about the things that they do. Do you know why? Because faith works. 
It's always doing something. Either you have faith and it's, it's doing good, or there's a lack of faith, or there's an issue, and you're doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing. So when you're doing stuff that you shouldn't be doing, Jesus rebuked the church. He'd say, you're doing this, stop doing it, please repent quickly, or you're going to get in trouble, little church. And then on the flip side of it, he says, I know your works. I know that you guys are laboring. I know that you're, that, that you're going forward. And he says, because of the things that you've been doing, because of the stewardship I've given you, because of the things you're doing in my name, he gets into a little bit more detail. I have set before you an open door. Notice that works is past tense. Door is future tense or present future. As you're going through and you're faithfully seeking God, you're faithfully taking those steps of faith and your life is exhibiting the holiness and truth of God, more doors seem to open. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. This verse is probably one of the verses that I can identify with most. I'm like, Lord, I cannot do this. I'm living in a foreign country. My wife keeps getting pregnant and having kids. We're learning a new language. Like we're in the community. I don't know what I'm doing. How is this going to work? How is this going to, to, to be a witness for you with salvations, fruit of salvation in people's lives? I cannot do this. I don't know what I'm doing. And he would speak to me this over and over again. He said, you have little strength. You have little strength. I'm going to take care of you. Don't be a little strength. I'm setting open doors for you that you don't have to be strong to open, that you don't have to pry, that you don't have to use your muscles. You're of little strength. I love you. I'm going to care for you. And here I'm going to open these doors. And if it wasn't, if that wasn't the truth, I don't know what was. So God said to us in Croatia, he said, he gave us a vision and it wasn't more, it was less of a speaking, and it was more of a vision. He said, I want you guys to open a cafe. Well, that would be awesome. We would love to open a European cafe, a cafe in Europe. So we did the reverse. You know, cafes in America, when you go to a cafe, it's all like European, and because cafes are European, kind of, you know, and, and we did the opposite. We went to Croatia, and we opened a American cafe, we sold stuff like pizza and nachos, brownies and chocolate chip cookies. And talk about a hook of the gospel. <laughs> Those kids would come. They would stand in a line. I could show you pictures of these high school and college students standing in a line and, and kids crying when we ran out of brownies and chocolate chip cookies. We're like, oh, man, use whatever it takes, you know, to get them in and then hit them with the gospel. Over and over and over again. Anyway, so back on track. We had this vision to open this cafe. And what we were going to do is the church, the, the people that were coming were very poor. 
that had, were getting saved and starting to attend our fellowship. We wanted to open this cafe so that we can be business owners. We could be a light in the community. We can meet people. People could see us. It's not like we're hiding in a back room doing a Bible study. You know, our doors are open every day. Come in. We have these events scheduled. Yes, there was some persecution to anybody who was not part of the religious uh, affiliation of Croatia, but um, God was faithful to, to take care of us through that process. And we didn't have anything. We had nothing. Like, we barely made it from support check to support check. Like I said, I was so excited about that $1,000. So I typed up this whole business proposal, this business plan. It was like that thick. It was, had all of it, you know, how we were going to do it and what we were going to do. And I, I emailed it out to all of our supporters and the churches that supported us. I said, hey guys, I know that you support us. We love you, but this is our vision. It's going to be an incredible thing here in Croatia. Would you, could you commit to partnering with us, helping us out? Some time went by. Didn't hear from one person. Nobody even said, hey, hey uh, we think, we're thinking about it. We'll pray for you. People didn't even respond. Then one day, We were approached by somebody and they said, hey, we have a cafe. We don't want it anymore. Do you guys want a cafe? We'll give it to you. Everything. The machine, the oven, everything in it is yours. You go ahead and you can move in on this date and start using it if you want it. Just like that. He opens doors that no man can shut. And we're like, are you serious? And he said, yeah, I mean, we can't cover the rent for you because we're done. But um, here's the facility. Here's everything you need to get started. And from day one, we never were not able to pay rent on that space. And the church grew into it. We had an upper room. We called it the upper room. And we had a cafe level where the cafe was on. All the seating and our sanctuary was upstairs in the cafe. The cafe was on the, on the ground floor. And then down below was a basement where there were some, uh, my office and, and a couple rooms. And just like that, just like that, boom, God opens doors. And he says, you have little strength. You stop worrying your pretty little head off. I'm going to take care of it. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. During these days, I didn't know. I'm like, oh God, I know that this decision is for you. I know that this is what you want us to do. But how in the world is it going to happen? And little did I know, God's like, stop being a weakling. Oh, on another note, Paul says, three times I cried out to the Lord to have him deliver me from this thorn in the flesh. And God's response to Paul was what? Oh, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. So being of little strength allows God to be shown as mighty and strong on our behalf. Verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. One of the things that we experience when we're in that kind of context is that we have, we have a lot of enemies. 
And people talk about, you don't know how blessed you are to be in America and to be a Christian. There's no persecution. I don't, I don't really buy into that. The persecution is just, it looks different. And the enemy, just like Balaam and Balak, he goes around four different places around where you're camped and he finds the thing that you're most susceptible to or that you, you may be willing to give in by and he attacks you from that angle. It's different. I think here for us, it could be complacency. It could be a, a failure to keep moving. We talked last week, we, we could identify in, in, in our culture as sardines, sardinians, however you want to say it. Sardis, the church last week, our study. And it's just different. It looks differently. But you have more enemies in different places, people that will physically oppose you. We had people physically opposing us in the community there. We had people physically opposing us when it came to trying to find a building. We got kicked out of, how many places did we get kicked out of? Four or five, I think it was five. There was one place, our first building, our first church service as Calvary Chapel of Split. It is going to be on Easter, on the main street. No church is able to get that close to the city center because the government finds out or somebody higher up finds out and they squash it. And here we are right across the street from the main bus station in an area that this bus station services 500,000 people. Yeah, we had a team come down from Hungary. We got this place. We went in, we painted it. We polished the floors. We bought new chairs. We, we set this thing up. It looked awesome. And then we had one service in it, Easter Sunday. The landlord decided, oh, I changed my mind. I don't want you guys in there. You're a bunch of lousy Christians. And I told them up front, there's no way I'm going to try to hide something like that. Oh, no, we're not a church. Come by, come on. It's just not going to happen. I'm like, hey, listen, we're Christians. It's cool, though. We just teach the Bible. We're not a cult. We're not a sect. We don't eat babies. We just study God's word together. Okay, yeah, no problem. One week later, one service later, hey, you guys are out of here. Nope, we're not doing it. Enemies, right? And God knows that we have enemies, but he's, he's always there to faithfully care for us in spite of our enemies. In fact, he sets up, uh, you prepare a table before mine enemies, right? You prepare a table before my enemies and they're going to watch me feasting. Kind of similar here in Philadelphia. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, there's a few different opinions about what this means. This doesn't literally mean that they're going to be worshiping the church, obviously, clearly. But we did mention something this morning that when we get to heaven, no matter what side you're on or where you're at, every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Period. Everybody, past, present, and future. And while their knees are bowed down, worshiping God for who he is, it's quite possible that there's going to be some of us that are standing by Jesus' side. And some support for that comes at the end of this letter to the church in Philadelphia. But the point is that we are more associated with him. He has chosen us. He loves us. And we're going to be in a position that other people recognize that they were coming against us, but they were wrong and we were right. We were strong. We continue to go forward. 
and we stand with Jesus. He he says, indeed, I will make those a synagogue of Satan who they say they are Jews and are not. Now, this is, most people agree that this is speaking literally, that these people were literal Jews and many Jewish Christians were saved in Philadelphia and they were kicked out, excommunicated from the synagogue. And there was this air of righteousness to the point of not I'm right and and you're wrong, but I'm right, you're wrong, so I'm going to punch you in the face kind of, you know, kind of deal. Not, not, not okay. He says, I know that, that what the, who they are. They call themselves Jews and they're not. What does he say they are? They're the synagogue of Satan. This is very Jesus-esque in his vocabulary, speaking to the high-ranking religious elite of his day, isn't it? He calls them brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. These are very strongly worded rebukes by Satan to the, the religious rulers, <laughs> religious rulers. I had to come back from that one, but, um, and he said to them, didn't he? He said, you're, you're not of my father. Your father is Satan. You're Satan's children. <laughs> you're the devil's kids. That's what Jesus said to him in the gospel. Those guys, those are the synagogue of Satan. What does this really mean? If we break this down, it's possible that people can claim some kind of distinction, holiness, or difference and say that it's in God's name when in reality they have been manipulated and deceived into a false religious system that Satan somewhat created or put together to deceive people, to prohibit them having right and true fellowship with God, which is what God's desire is for people. Now, I know that that's heavy, but there are people who are deceived. Do you know how many times in the New Testament it says, do not be deceived? I can't remember, but it's a lot. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And how do we gauge whether something is true or not? We got it right here. We got it right here. We're not talking about some kind of, you know, little baloney, no big deal, theological argument, doctrine, pet pet theology, whatever. We're talking about truth. We're talking about what we talked about a couple months ago with the mother God cult, deceiving people into thinking that Jesus came back in 1972. This is a a, a meeting of Satan. No matter what they think they're doing, whose name they think they're doing it in, it is deception. And I had a talk I shared with you guys. I had a talk with one of these guys and I was just, we were going back and forth and it, and it reached the point for me of no return when he said a couple things that were a little bit too much and I was just hammering him. I was not in, not in, not in anger or frustration or meanness, but in passion. Listen, I said to him, listen, you are being deceived. Please, please, please. And Jude, it says, and some save with compassion and others grabbing them and yanking them from the fire. I'm trying to help you. These people have deceived you. And he became like another person. He's like, no, I will never forsake the mother God. I know the truth now. I will never forsake the mother God. And I'm like, bro, you're in a bad place. This is a real problem. But Jesus says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of it. And those people are going to see what the truth is. And those people are going to see those who are my servants who have submitted to me. And they are going to be part of the kingdom in a way that's special. 
Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Perseverance. Perseverance. This word has been on my mind a lot lately because I, I think that there, there may be a problem in our culture where we, we kind of we burn out because things are so busy and you're forced to, to be busy. And the term um, busyness has really has been elevated to a different level. Like this is what you have to, you should be doing. This is, if you're a good parent, if you're a good husband, if you're a good wife, if you're a good employee, if you're, then this is what you're, you're going you're gonna to be looking like. You're going to be working 80 hours a week. Forget 40. That's for the sissies. Like you're going to be, you're going to be putting, doing overtime on your overtime because this is what the world says the world standard is, right? And this is what you have to do. But that's a lie too. We can identify the priorities in God's word of what we should be doing. And when times get tough, in, in that respect, in, in, in we know that we're doing the right thing. We know that we're following the Lord. We know that what's happening is, is a setback and what's required is perseverance. I believe he'll give us that word, persevere. I will, uh, also, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. A lot of people want to look at this and talk about pre-trib, post-trib, um, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib positions. And the, the argument in the Greek is that the, the word, uh, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole wor- world, that keep you from the hour of trial is, is the Greek word that, that um, is either through the trial or out of the trial. And theologians argue on both sides. Because if it's through the trial, then it's most probably mid and post-trib. If it's out of the trial, we're talking about not even present, not even there. Do I really want to get into the whole issue tonight? We don't have time. The reality is that nobody, nobody understood what Jesus was saying the first time. Like he's like, I'm going to die. Listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified, but it's okay because I'm going to raise three days later. And there he is, crucified Messiah, standing before them, and it says, and they still doubted. And it's like, they never got it, even after the fact, when the fulfillment of, of what he said he came to do was, was complete. They never got it. And I think that we rip ourselves off when we attach ourselves so firmly to a position and we say, I got it. I got it. This is what's going to happen. And as soon as we, you know, sink our feet in the sand and say, this is what's going to happen. And Jesus is like laughing. He's like, you don't have any idea what I'm doing. You never had any idea what I was doing. What I'm doing, I want you to trust is good. And what I'm doing is going to come to pass. And it's going to come to pass quickly. But, but as soon as we start to harden ourselves doctrinally, it, it turns into, it, it becomes pride. And then it becomes sin. And then it's got to be addressed. You wouldn't believe how many conversations I have with people where they want to they argue doctrine with me. I'm like, are you serious? Like, how, when's the last time you told somebody about how much Jesus loves them? Instead of honing your homiletical skills so that you can battle with me. Amen. 
So is it, you know, what is it? We don't know. But we know that he's going to keep us from it. He's going to keep us from, from the hour, just us, those of us who are here tonight. <laughs> Which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Now, I like this coming quickly. You guys all know what that means, right? Behold, I am coming quickly does not mean I'm on my way and I'll be there soon. Behold, I'm coming quickly means when I get there, boom, I'm there. Like, that's it. I'm there. And that is end of story. It's kind of like this with my kids. I love my kids. I love using them as, as examples because they're great kids. I say to my kids, I say, hey, don't do that. This was your first, final, and last warning. Do not do that. Then if they do it again, boom, they get the consequences. I, I think that that's how God operates, so that's how I do it. And, and, and they understand where the lines are. So Jesus says, hey, do this, don't do that, I'm coming quickly. And then he's not one of those hovering warning parents. I'm warning you, don't do that. I'm warning you, I'm warning you, don't make me warn you again. Don't make me warn you again. I'm like, you just warned your kid 25 times and they know you are an absolute pushover and they're not going to listen to you. But God's children, he says, listen, this is what's going to happen. This is what I want you to be aware of, to be prepared for. And then, boom, it happens. And people could be like, hey, how come you didn't give us any warning? I did give you warning. I told you. I want you to be in a position. And for them, it was the positive. For other people, it is or was in warnings the negative. But for us, for the church of Philadelphia, it was for the positive. He says, when I come, I'm going to come. And it's just going to be done, which is good. We don't have to work through a process more specifically, if I can say so, maybe even a process of six and a half years where he comes, it's over, and we understand that there will be no more waiting involved. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Oh, by the way, because I didn't, I didn't say it, I apologize, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, what I'm talking about is a pre-tribulationist rapture viewpoint mid and post is the doctrine of the rapture when we are caught up in heaven to be with Jesus before the judgment of the earth. And that is one thing that I think that no matter what position you have, you have to agree, you have to agree that when God judges the earth, the church will not be here, period. And however you, however you lay that out in, the, in those last years is whatever, but the church will not be here. It will be taken out by one means or another. And then in Revelation chapter 20, 22, 20 and 22, the descending of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, the, the promises of God fulfilled literally to not only the Jews, but those of us who, who believe that's the position of the the definition of the pre, mid, and post-trib views. Verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Similar verses like these in the Psalms, which I love. What is the temple of God? The temple of God is the place that God dwells. 
we see in the Old Testament that the tabernacle was set up. It was erected. It was taken down. The tabernacle of meeting was where the presence of God came and dwelt among the people. Uh, David, in one of his psalms, says, I want to be like an, an olive tree planted in the courts of God. Psalm 42, 18, I believe. Um, I want to be like a sparrow to make my nest up in the rafters in the house of God so that I could dwell there. I never have to leave. I want to be a tree planted so I never have to leave. He says here, for those who overcome, I will make you a pillar in the house of my God. Do you move pillars around very much? You know, the funny thing about pillars is if you look at ancient architecture, some of these ancient buildings, the only things that are still standing are the pillars, which shows how much they're moved. Never. He says, your position will be in God's house so secured in the presence of God that you will be immovable. I love that picture. You guys like that picture? I love that picture. Pillar symbolizes stability and permanence. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to this church. He says my God three times. Is that a coincidence? Probably not. How many positions of the Trinitarian Godhead are there? Three, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? He says, I will write on you the name of my God. Now, what does that mean? He's going to go to St. Peter. He's a tattoo artist now in heaven. And Yeah, you come over here. You get the name of God on you. you get, well, not necessarily. You know, um, I don't like, I don't care for, I never have. I don't know what it is about me. I just don't care for branding, you know? Um, I get the idea, I get the concept, I get the benefit. But when I get a hat, I love hats, like I talked about this morning in this morning's service. I love black hats. And I want it plain. I don't want your logo on it. I don't want your emblem on it. I don't want people to think I'm cool because I'm wearing something that says Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever. It's a name. That's an identifier that people are allowed to put you into a subculture I was at a soccer game in Croatia one time and I'm standing there watching the game in the bad section, the cheap seats, and this guy in front of me smoking a joint. And, and um, he's sitting there and I'm like, all right, I'm trying to move down here. And he turns around, he hears me speaking English with my other friends that are there. And he turns around, it's very early days that we were there. He says, hey, smoke this joint with me. I'm like, no, I'm not smoking a joint with you. He says, why? There's no cameras here like in America. Nobody's watching. Nobody cares. I'm offering you to smoke a joint with me. And I'm like, I'm not going to smoke a joint. I don't smoke weed and I'm not smoking the joint. And he's like, dude, I can see that you're wearing element hat and element shirt. And, and everybody knows skaters all smoke pot and, and you're a skater. So you smoke. I'm like, how do you, why would I be? I like the shirt. I like the color of the shirt. Okay. Like it doesn't mean I'm a skater because I wore an element shirt. And he's like, if you don't smoke this joint, I'm going to beat your face in. Like, you're disrespecting me, and I'm going I'm to beat you up right now. And I said, I'm not smoking the joint. And I moved down a few chairs, and he cussed at me and turned around and kept smoking the joint and watching the game. But 
they're identifiers, you know? Oh, you have this kind of, per- oh, you have those glasses? I got some Prada glasses, dirt, dirt cheap in Europe because they're European. Like, they're not imports there. They're local, you know? So I got these Prada glasses that were super cool for a really good price. And I came back to the States and I was visiting a church. And they're like, oh, the missionary's wearing Prada, huh? And I'm like, why has it got to be like that? Why has it got to be? But listen, all that to say, my point is, Jesus says, I'm going to put my name on you. I'm going to take my father's name and everybody's going everybody's to know that you represent him. This is, this is my servant. This is my friend. This is my son. This is my daughter. And he's going to give you a hat that says Yahweh on it or whatever. It's going to be a black hat for me. And I don't care if it's branded. branded. And it's going to say God, the father. And only certain, it's swag wear for the Philadelphia church that only they're going to get to wear. You get what I'm saying? You see where I'm coming from? I'm going to write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Same thing. I go to Colorado a, few, a couple months ago to visit some friends and do this expositors collective. We're teaching these younger guys how to teach and preach the Bible. It was a really fun time. Walking through the airport in Colorado and everywhere I go, I see people wearing shirts. Denver, 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 Colorado, Colorado, see on everything. I'm like, these people are crazy about Colorado. Like they really love it. I'm like, how come Nevada people don't care about Nevada? Nobody has any Nevada apparel. I was just talking to this about to somebody the other day, but you are going to have swag wear for the new Jerusalem here. New Jerusalem. Forget California. Who wears a shirt that says California on it and lives in any other state? Just kidding. I don't care if you wear a California shirt. Who's wearing one right now? You got one under your shirt, don't you? Your sweater? I'm just kidding. No, I'm just joking though. The new, I'm going to write the name of the city that you belong to. Do you know where I live? The New Jerusalem. Do you know where, where the New Jerusalem is? It's where the temple is. It's where I live. I'm a pillar, you see, in the house of God. That's where I dwell, nearest to him, because he said so. Because I'm an overcomer. So when it gets to be difficult, you take these promises and you look at them and you say, yes, God, I do believe that if I persevere through this, you're going to open doors no man can shut. You're going to close doors that no man can open because you've got the cattle on a thousand hills. You're going to take care of me through everything. And in the end, I'm going to be a pillar or I'm going to be a nested bird. I'm going to be a tree planted in your courts and I'm going to abide with you in your presence forever. And I will write on him my new name. This is interesting, this new name thing. And, and the name thing, isn't it, isn't it coincident? What did we talk about this morning? Does anybody remember what the title of the message was? Reputation. And what's reputation? What was it connected to directly? The name. Chapter 7, verse 1, Ecclesiastes. A good name is better than precious ointment. And we talked about names. We talked about the name of Jesus that is the name above all names. And here we see a, a name as an identifier. A name, it, it, it conveys something. My, my mom, 
named me Timothy. Timothy means honoring God. She wanted me to, she wanted to give me a little help out of the womb, you know? Timothy, Timothy, Timothy means honoring God. You better be honoring God. Heard that my whole life. By the grace of God, I'm honoring him now before when I was struggling, not so much. But the name is a powerful thing. And he says to the church in, uh, he says to the church in Philadelphia that the name is going to be something that, that is a representation like we talked about this morning, reputation. All right, what's the new name? Well, we don't know because it's to be revealed, just like it's to be revealed to the other church who's going to get the small rock with the new name written on it that only you and Jesus are going to know. There's big things with this, this name thing is a big deal. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, sorry. And there we conclude the church in Philadelphia. Let's, let's finish up and pray. God, we know that this word is for us, that you love us, that you meet us where we're at, and that all of the churches, everything that's said to all seven of these churches that, we look, that we've been looking at over the last weeks, we want to have ears to hear for all of them. We want to settle on the good churches. We want to settle in Philadelphia and I'd excuse me, and identify with, with that more than any other. But, but we want to have ears to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. We want to be in a place where we're humbled before you to receive all that you have for us so that we can be more conformed into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless my brothers and sisters this week, Father. Give them a special blessing for their desire to sit under your word tonight. Start off their week tomorrow with an extra measure of grace, if, however much you see to it, God. Bless them, allow them to shine brightly for you, encourage them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.